nonprofit status is not about how much revenue is generated in athletics or elsewhere in higher education. It is about how the revenue is used to meet the tax-exempt purpose of educating young men and women. College athletic departments and conferences are different from professional sports. In the latter, the goal is to focus on a single sport and generate a profit for team owners. In college sports, the goal is to use revenue to support a wide range of sports and sort of maximize participation opportunities. Any lingering doubts about the educational, not-for-profit status of intercollegiate athletics will be dispelled by the increased level of accountability and transparency of athletics budgets recommended by the task force report. No one should be able to legitimately claim that expenditures in athletics are being used for anything but the purposes of higher education. Should schools be looking to replace athletic directors with businessmen and bankers with experience in debt markets, real estate and media, rather than ex-football coaches or school administrators? Has the NCAA gotten professional enough that schools need to hire more sophisticated business minds to reach your goals? Actually, there are few ADs now who are former football players. I think that trend has gone by the wayside some years ago. And we do have ADs now who are coming uh, with MBAs and other experiences on campus. But actually, to think of them as financial experts and bankers, I think is to miss the point of the talk as a whole. The point is really that intercollegiate athletics is part of the university, is part of the academic mission of the institution. More and more, we have to have athletic directors who attune to understand the academic mission of the institution. I've been a strong advocate, for example, of putting athletic directors on the president's cabinet, not only so that the rest of the president's cabinet could learn about intercollegiate athletics, but so the athletic director himself or herself can understand what the academic priorities are of the institution, what their strategic plan is for increasing academic performance. The athletic director has to be a partner in the academic success of the institution. I'm pleased to say that we've seen a trend of that kind developing where at least a third of the ADs now in Division I in fact serve on the president's cabinet and we're headed in the right direction there. Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all those places. I have a blog that I started writing in, gosh, I don't know, over four years ago. I haven't done anything with it much in the last year since I switched to the podcast format, but you can check out the blog if you'd like, and that is at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. And if you'd like to reach out to me, please feel free to do so. You can shoot me an email at rich at cagerredux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. Today is July 6th, 2022. And today we're going to talk about one of the things that has just popped up in the last few weeks that I think says a lot about the state of college sports and its value system. And really this transcends college sports. This goes to the value system of higher education. And I've said in prior episodes that one of the things that in-system critics of big-time college sports have been very effective in doing is to try to isolate the athletics interest as outside of the rest of the university. And a lot of the the criticism, and this is mainly from academic writers, there, there was a lot of that that came out in the late 1990s. There were a number of books and articles, and uh, you had the uh, Mellon Foundation sponsoring some books, research-oriented books that were really critical of big-time college sports. And we're making the case that the very existence of big-time college sports and higher education in America was a problem because it drew down on the values of higher education. But I think when you look honestly at what has happened really over the last 40 years, since Board of Regents, I think, was an important inflection point in the relationship between the academic interests and the athletic interests, if you view those as as two kind of separate worlds at the institutional level, you had the explosion 
of the football market, the expansion of broadcast media outlets. And in the second episode, I talked about why are universities in this business? Why are they in the game of big time college sports? And college sports gives these institutions really 24 seven access to marketing and branding through media partners that they have direct financial uh, relationships with. I mean, it's a great situation for them and it's only getting bigger and bigger. And that's reflected in part by what's happening right now. We have a new round of conference realignment. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. I'm going to defer that discussion to another episode or episodes. But then you also have increasingly the uh, in-system stakeholder beneficiary decision makers coming out of the entertainment industry, whether it's the sports entertainment industry or the entertainment industry writ large, those are the people that are now sitting in the the captain's chairs. And I'm going to talk about one in this episode that's really uh, going to be the focus of the episode. And that was the Big 12's recent hire of Brett Yormark as the Big 12 Conference Commissioner. And he has absolutely zero experience in higher education. He's never worked at a university. He's never worked in an athletics department. He uh, has no direct connection to the institutions that uh, he will be representing as the commissioner of the Big 12. And I'm going to go into that in some detail. But what we have now are this fusion of the athletics interest into the uh, business of higher education. And these issues simply can't be isolated as a college sports issue. They are fused at the financial level, at the image and branding level, at the alumni development level, at the broadest commercial level, and also importantly now at the values level. And when you look at the language that's being used now in the value system of college sports, we're not hearing anymore the values that are emphasizing education or academic integrity. And I talked about this in the context of these hearings that occurred in the Senate in 2020 that were driven by the NCAA and the Power Five and their lawyers and lobbyists, and they ran through NCAA Power Five friendly Republican senators. And the theme in some of those hearings, and there was one in in judiciary, I think it was July 22nd, and Lindsey Graham, the uh, senator from South Carolina, he's a Republican, he called that hearing, and it was titled Protecting the Integrity of College Sports. Not the integrity of higher education, but the integrity of college sports, because when you frame it in terms of higher education, you have to talk about the values issue. And the, use, the discussion used to be on the values dissonance between the sports product and the mission of higher education. Now the values issue is that they are inseparable and they are based in large part on very shallow values and very shallow goals. And that goes to publicity, prestige, reputation, power, and, and, and all that leads to money, 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 money. And in that second episode that I did where I talked about why universities are in this business, I talked about this connection between mission and money. And you hear institutions of higher education talk about the importance of mission. And that's what they put front and center in their mission statements and all their external facing propaganda to the outside world. But behind the scenes, they're engaged in rapacious money seeking. And I pointed out in that episode that there have been these studies that have looked at the mission statements of schools across the NCAA and how few of them actually mention college athletics. The suggestion being there that if the activity isn't mentioned in the mission statement, then it is somehow outside the scope of the institutional value system and its mission. And I just think that's silly because in those same mission statements, you don't see any references to generating wealth for wealth's sake. And that's what institutions do now. And that is measured, particularly for private schools, in the size of their endowment. And that has become a proxy for prestige and power and value. So you have this money mission circle, and you look at that thing long enough, this money mission swirling around in a circle, and all of a sudden they become indistinguishable. And you can't separate the acquisition of wealth from the mission of higher education. And and one of the easiest pathways to branding, to marketing, 
marketing to exposure to free advertising is through athletics. And Henry Pritchett in 1929 in the Carnegie Report said that explicitly. And he was spot on. And he said, it's unfortunate that the world-class scientist gets only a passing notice and that college sports are really how uh, a lot of institutions of higher education introduce themselves to, to the world. But that's just the value system in, in this country. And it was it's just as true today. Actually, it's more true today than it was 100 years ago when Henry Pritchett made that uh, really important observation. And the downside of that reality is that over time, as the technology has become more sophisticated and the product has become really a part of American culture, and here I'm talking primarily about big-time football and big-time men's basketball, but I think all of college sports has achieved that level of cultural importance. And when I was talking in that second episode about the irony of the gap between the attention that big-time athletes and big-time college sports get versus how we look at and and view historically our great minds and our great scientists and our great thinkers and our great intellectual movements. It's really distressing, honestly. You know, personally, I don't think it should be that way. And college sports and the ESPN view of the world has become a new opiate for the masses. And we, I think we've lost our way in our value system in higher education. But that is not the fault of the athletes who give those products value. It is the fault of the institutions who over time have allowed an encroachment into the value system that they claim to hold as an uh, institution of higher education. And now they are openly pressing the gas on the overt commercialization and professionalization of the college sports component of higher education. And they're doing it shamelessly. And they're doing it without any pushback from any stakeholders at the institutional level or any observers out in the broader commentariat, both the sports media and the broader media. And a lot of people think that, look, this is a good thing. So having this crazy conference realignment play out and the formation of what is an NFL light sports product is just being honest about where the business model has been heading for a long time and hiring leaders and decision makers in college sports who are out of the entertainment industry and the sports entertainment industry with ties to broadcast media outlets is the sensible thing to do because that's the reality of the marketplace. And at one level, I agree with that. But the problem with making that acknowledgement, that reality-based acknowledgement, is that when it comes to the institutional stakeholders' relationship to the performers in the entertainment product who give the product its value, these same people are falling back on the same tired education-based fantasy talking points that make a mockery of the values that they claim to hold at the institutional level. So in Congress, in federal courts, in their public relations campaigns, you have these decision makers who are both living in the reality of the sports entertainment world that they have created, and then denying the reality of the true relationship between the performers and the uh, people who produce the entertainment. And you have the NCAA and the Power Five in federal litigation taking the position that athletes cannot be deemed employees as a matter of law. They're doing the same thing in Congress because based on the most recent Senate lobbying disclosures for the first quarter of 2022 that were just filed in, in April of 2022, they're supporting bills that would make it impossible for athletes to be employees. They are supporting bills that would federalize the name, image, and likeness market, and they are supporting bills that would create an antitrust immunity for the NCAA and the Power Five. So they are living in 1950s compensation limits and athlete restrictions, while at the same time in 2022, they're just adapting to the realities of the new market. They're making the same ridiculous argument with sports betting. And they have built their entire infractions and enforcement 
process around the evils of sports betting. But now they're just open to the realities of the new sports betting world after the Supreme Court struck down a federal anti-gambling law in 2018. And they are full steam ahead with that. And there's no discussion about the values that they left in the rearview mirror. And I think that is really important because it's in real time right now, we are seeing the NCAA and the Power Five literally wiping away all of these values-based lines that they drew in the sand and now have abandoned because those lines are indefensible given the interest, the financial interest, the institutional interest, the branding interest, the marketing interest that the big time uh, Power Five schools feel like they need to pursue. And when I get to the press release that the Big 12 released after they hired Brett Yormark, I think it's pretty easy to see how there have been subtle shifts in language. And language is so, so important. And the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries get to define what words are permissible for describing the interests of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. And if you can control the language, and then you control the narrative. And if you control the narrative, you normally get your way. I, I still think that's true. But I, I talk about it in, in, the, in terms of the E-words. And I titled the episode to emphasize that. And the NCAA and Power Five's longstanding E-word, education, has been disappeared from the language. And now they're talking entertainment and engagement. And by engagement, they mean fan engagement, getting as many asses in the seats as possible and continuing to grow their consumer base. But we had education, education, education for decades. And now that has faded into the background because that's simply not really the language that in-system stakeholder beneficiaries are talking behind the scenes. And what's happening behind the scenes is becoming more apparent. And the propaganda veil is less effective now because this is just overt, uh, wide open capitalism and commercialism and eat what you kill. And you're back to Miles Brand's 2006 State of the Association speech where he said, amateur defines the participant, not the enterprise. And then uh, more comments from Brand back in his 2003 Senate testimony. And he was sitting right beside Harvey Perlman, who was then the chancellor of uh, the University of Nebraska. And they were both saying that when it comes to big time football, you eat what you kill. And this is just a rough and tumble, wild west free market that this country was built around and the economic liberties that underpin that Wild West market activity. And they said, look, this is about free markets. This is about free enterprise. This is about American values at work. And Perlman said straight up, and again, he was trying to defend the, the big time football postseason. And at the time that was the BCS. And there, were, there was all this, all this banter back and forth between the what are now the Power Five and, and the Group of Five. And the Group of Five felt like they were left out of the party in postseason football, and they were making some noise about antitrust issues and all that stuff. And Perlman just said, this is America. And I thought, in this country, if you work hard and you do the right thing and you put out a product that has value, you should be able to enjoy the fruits of your hard work, your talent, and your product. And he's absolutely right. But in this dysfunctional, indefensible business model, that only applies to the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries who are raking in the money, not to the laborers who produce it. And that hypocrisy could not be clearer now in July of 2022. And I'm following uh, these events in, in the media. And it's just shocking. It's shocking that nobody's talking about this at the values level or coming around and saying, wait a minute, if we're going to be the NFL, then why don't we also include that, that little thing called collective bargaining? And we haven't had a, a lot of speculation about what the, the final conference realignment is going to look like, but it's, it's going to look like an NFL product and it's going to be modeled after the NFL product. There's no question about that. It already has many features of the NFL. Big time Power 5 football does at the highest levels. So if, if you're going to acknowledge the overt professionalism, then how can you continue to argue that these athletes shouldn't be employees and shouldn't be paid? And that brings me to squarely to the opening montage. And those quotes that you heard were from Miles Brand, 
former NCAA president, in a speech that he gave on October 30th of 2006 to the National Press Club. And I've talked quite a bit about Miles Brand, and he was the first university president to be the NCAA president. And uh, his tenure was consequential. He didn't serve nearly as long as Walter Byers or Mark Emmert. Unfortunately, Brand passed away of cancer in 2009. But I think he was really consequential because he tried to come up with a framework to justify all of the hypocrisy. And I've talked quite a bit about that. And that is this collegiate model that he began formulating in 2003, 2004, and then articulate, articulated in its full form in 2006. And it had two basic components. The one was at the definitional level, he said the athletics component of big-time college sports inherits its values from the university. And at the definitional level, the educational value of athletics is embedded in the values of the institution, and they are inseparable. So you, you can't treat those two things as separate pieces of the institutional value system, yet that's precisely what the critics of uh, big-time college sports, most of that criticism coming out of the academy itself, were saying in the 1990s and into the 2000s when it was a hot topic about this this values dissonance. But Brand was trying to reconcile that. And then in 2006, he also was under a lot of pressure, both from the have-nots in the football world who were talking, trying to get Congress to get involved and pass some legislation that would force the, the big dogs in big-time football to allow the have-nots to have a seat at the table. And then he was also getting pressure from Congress. The House Ways and Means Committee was looking into the football and men's basketball products and questioning whether those two products were consistent with the NCAA's nonprofit mission, its educational nonprofit mission. And you know, the grand reconciliation of all those tensions at the definitional level, at the values level, was this marriage of the values, educational value of college sports and the educational mission and value system of higher education. And then Brand took that a step further and said this value system also it operates within a financial framework of the way that universities operate and this notion of massive redistributions of revenue from sources at the university level that make money to other parts of the university that don't make money is just what universities do. And then he folded that, that philosophy into the business of big-time college sports. And he said, it is perfectly appropriate. Indeed, it is, it is necessary. It is mandatory that we maximize revenue in football and men's basketball to fund all the non-revenue Olympic and women's sports who lose money. All of them lose money. All of them. So we take the money from football and men's basketball, and then we create, quote-unquote, participation opportunities for downstream beneficiaries. And the problem with that, as I've discussed in detail, and I talked about this in episodes, let's see, 23 and 24, and then episode 69. I talked about this formulation of the collegiate model as the financial framework for college sports. And the, the fatal flaw in that is that when you look at who the people are involved in that transfer, and when you look at big-time football and men's basketball, basketball, you have a labor force comprised disproportionately of African-American men. And then when you look at the beneficiary side, you have overwhelmingly white beneficiaries in non-revenue sports and quote-unquote Olympic sports and, and women's sports. And it's just a terrible model. And, and nobody's really talking honestly about it, at least not the in-system beneficiaries who don't want to talk about it. They just want to preserve the, the status quo. And they don't want to acknowledge that in the system we have profit athletes and loss athletes. And uh, I have borrowed that description of the athletes in the system from University of South Carolina Professor Richard Southall, who's done some really important work in the athletes' rights space. I've said before, it's so important to understand Miles Brand's collegiate model in order to understand the current value system of college sports and higher education and how they've been reconciled through Brand's theory. And then also the financial underpinning of, of big-time college sports. And in 2013, Professor Southall co-authored a, a paper with uh, Ellen Starowski, Professor Starowski, who I think was at Drexel at the time. Now she's at Ithaca, I believe. And uh, the name of the article is 
cheering on the collegiate model, disseminating and embedding the NCAA's redefinition of amateurism. And I'm going to link to that article in the show notes of my my podcast website, bigamateurism.com. My resource links do not appear on the third-party podcast directories. But Professor Southall and Professor Starowski walk through Miles Brand's public speeches in the early 2000s and explain in a really thoughtful and persuasive way how Miles Brand and all propagandists, and and the NCAA president is essentially a propagandist, change narratives and redefine principles in a way that suit the needs of the day. And because of the power of the NCAA and its allies, those narratives and those redefined principles are accepted through what South Hall and Starowski describe as spontaneous consent to these principles. And then the principles that they left behind just uh, cease to exist. And, you know, it's it's the kind of control of narratives and value shaping and language that we've seen in totalitarian governments. And in Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model, he created this framework that's a justification for the massive regressive transfer of wealth, but also the maximum exploitation of the laborers in football and men's basketball. And that may be the most consequential formulation of the business model for college sports and the justification for big-time college sports and in the history of college sports. And it was accepted immediately through spontaneous consent without any critical analysis, without any discussion of how that framework plays out in practice and who the people are in this regressive transfer of wealth from football and basketball to downstream beneficiaries and non-revenue sports. And I, I guess I should say this too. Miles Brand was a very smart man, and he had a mastery of these issues. And when you watch his speech before the National Press Club in 2006, particularly when you get to the Q&A, you really get an appreciation for how smart this guy is. And he, and he would take the uh, question and then effectively challenge the the, the premise that was beneath the question, and then pivot to how he wanted to talk about the issue. And I think that stands in, in stark contrast to the kind of uh, explanations for the business model that we've gotten under the most recent NCAA leadership. You know, Brand was able to go toe-to-toe with people who were challenging his theory in a way that was persuasive. And I wonder, I've thought about this from time to time, if Miles Brand had not passed away in 2009 and the business model continued to grow and evolve and then these antitrust suits and the state laws and and these administrative pathways to employee status all came onto the radar screen. I I would love to hear what he had to say. I mean, I think I know what he would probably say because he boxed himself in with that model. But, you know, this was a really consequential leader in college sports and this collegiate model is one of its most important tenets. And I think what we're seeing right now and this is expressing itself through this conference realignment and this NFL-like product for big-time football, and it's expressing itself in the emphasis on the sports and entertainment industry and maximizing revenue. That's what these people are paid to do, and that's what they're very good at, is finding new revenue streams and getting more money out of existing revenue streams, and, and that's why they're being hired. But I think that trend is the logical endpoint of Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model. Because as he said in that opening montage, it doesn't matter how we generate the revenue. What matters is how we spend it. And how we spend it is consistent with our nonprofit mission because we're creating scholarship opportunities for athletes who without this football and men's basketball revenue wouldn't be able to get a scholarship. And there are are so many problems with that model. I've talked quite a bit about them, and I'm going to talk more about them going forward. But for the purposes of of this episode, that value system, that uh, business model, that way of thinking about the relationship between the profit athletes and the institutions has no limits, really. I mean, in Miles Brand's 2006 speech, and again, he was on his heels a little bit because there was all this external pressure that was coming at him. And we also had the white suit that had been filed, that white versus NCAA, which challenged the NCAA's scholarship limit that was set below the full cost of attending college. And so Brand was under siege 
really. I think that's how he perceived it. And so this speech was, I think, really a response to the Ways and Means Committee and their concerned that maybe the NCAA, at least with respect to big-time football and big-time men's basketball, was not operating as a legitimate nonprofit. And so Brand kept coming back time and time again to the nonprofit status and how this business model is entirely consistent with its nonprofit status and all that stuff. But both in, in that seminal state of the association speech that was delivered in January of 2006, and then this National Press Club appearance in October of 2006, Brand was still putting a little caveat next to his construction of the collegiate model, and he paid some lip service and talked a little bit about the fact that this exploitation of revenue and the labor of football and men's basketball players still had to be done in a sensible way. I think he wasn't uh, saying that there are no limits, but what's happened through the evolution of that principle and that framework, which is alive and well, and I've talked quite a bit about that too, Miles Brand's formulation of the collegiate model or bastardized versions of it have popped up in the discussion about nil through this obnoxious displacement theory and this zero-sum nil marketplace. And they've also come up in congressional testimony. And you have people in Congress, and Linda Livingstone is a good example. In that September 30th, 2021 hearing, she invoked the collegiate model as a justification for exploiting the revenue of football and men's basketball players. And in her portrayal of that business model, she treated the beneficiaries of football and men's basketball player revenue as victims if they didn't have access to that revenue. And that just turns the business model upside down and inside out. And it turns the values issues upside down and inside out. And she didn't refer to Miles Brand. She didn't call it the collegiate model. But what she was describing was that. And it was, again, a bastardized version of that. But that's the way that these people think. Rebecca Blank, former chancellor of Wisconsin-Madison, who sat on the board of governors and the NCAA Division I board of directors, as did Livingstone. But uh, Blank, in testimony before the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee in September of 2020, she specifically invoked the collegiate model. And she's saying, look, you guys just don't really understand how this business works. And she's trying to articulate the collegiate model. And I'm not sure she articulated it correctly. But what she was saying is, we have this business model that's so important and we have to make sure that we are just maximizing the ever-living hell out of that football, men's basketball revenue so that we can send it downstream to beneficiaries and she doesn't say this, but the, the fact of the matter is beneficiaries who were overwhelmingly white. And that's gotten a free pass in this transition into the NFL era, the overt NFL era, and this movement towards having the entertainment industry run college sports officially. I mean, I think it's been happen- it's, that's been the case unofficially for a long time, but now it's official. It's out of the, it's out of the back rooms. It's out into the open. And again, there's no discussion about what that means at at the values level for these institutions of of higher education who like to pound their chests and talk about their amateur virtue and their emphasis on education and the primacy of the educational mission. We don't hear any of that. They, They can't. The Power Five university presidents can't say that with a straight face. They have sold their souls to the highest better. The very thing that Sonny Vaccaro said in 2001 when he was addressing a bunch of university presidents at the Knight Commission, and Mr. Vaccaro was very important in the evolution of the shoe and apparel industry and its relationship to college sports. And since around 2007, Mr. Vaccaro has been an outspoken and I think effective advocate for athletes' rights. But he said to those presidents in in 2001, look, all I can do is offer you the money. You're the ones who are taking it. And guess what? I I will offer it. And when I offer it, you're going to take it. And not only are you going to take it, you're going to come back and ask for more which is precisely what they've done. And that com- those comments from Mr. Vaccaro just ruffled a bunch of feathers and you had these presidents just getting their boxers all in a wad because they felt like that was just a terrible 
characterization of the their interests and their the integrity of higher education and the integrity of college sports. But Vicaro was absolutely right. And that is now happening with the, the sports broadcast media deals. So you have the SEC and the Big Ten, this conference realignment going toe-to-toe. And again, that's entirely predictable. I did an episode on that back when the SEC picked off Texas and Oklahoma was episode 42 titled Deja Vu All Over Again for Southern Football. And I talked about the historical roots of this conference realignment and this quest to be the the best uh, of the best in college football and how things sat after the first round of conference realignment. You can go back and check that out. I'm going to be doing probably two episodes on this new wave of conference realignment. But uh, sitting behind this face-off, between the Big Ten and the SEC are ESPN on the SEC side and Fox on the Big Ten side. And the Big Ten's about to renew their contract and Fox is going to pay whatever the hell it's going to take to keep them. And the SEC and ESPN have been joined at the hip for years and years and years. So those influences now are the business of college sports. And there's talk that Fox may be paying the... Big Ten a billion dollars a year for their the rights to broadcast Big Ten products, which means Big Ten football for all intents and purposes. And is any university president in their right mind going to say no to that? Well, of course not. But you're not even seeing university president presidents in the Big Twelve or the SEC or the or the Big Ten standing up and saying, "Wait a minute, let's at least acknowledge what the hell we're doing here," because this is fundamentally inconsistent with what we have been saying since the 1950s about this business model and the primacy of education and the primacy of the values of higher education. And we don't hear boo because they're too embarrassed to speak out, I think. But it speaks to the the power of the almighty dollar and how these decision makers and the the principle of presidential control is still part of the NCAA Constitution and they're spouting that propaganda out, but then they're turning around and hiring the most inside of insiders from the entertainment industry. And it's interesting, uh, that last quote that I that I put in there from Brand, that came in the Q&A at the end of his talk. His talk was maybe 45 minutes, and then he did about 15 minutes of Q&A. There was some interesting stuff there. But he got that question about looking at the increased professionalization of this business model here and the commercialization. Does it make sense to have people in the decision-making chairs at the institutional level, and he was talking specifically about athletics directors, not not necessarily conference commissioners, but I think the same thinking applies. But he said, the questioner said, should we be hiring people with business backgrounds rather than uh, former college football players or coaches? And Brand comes in and says, well, I think that's already happening. And again, this is in 2006, so 15 years ago. But he said, yeah, a lot of ADs now have MBAs. And there's an understanding that uh, there's a business component of this that that needs some, perhaps some special expertise. But then he flips that and says, but, and this is a massive but to the the thinking about the criteria for people who are going to sit in decision-making seats in the governance and regulation of college sports. But he says... We absolutely need to make sure that the athletics directors who traditionally come out of an athletic background understand the values, goals, and mission of higher education writ large and that institution's specific interpretation of those values and application of those values. And he said one way to do that was to have these athletics directors and key athletics administrators sitting on academic committees and having appointments that would allow them some crossover and, and, and bridge these two worlds that uh, that Brand was describing, which was interesting because he, his collegiate model at the defini- definitional level didn't draw that distinction. But as a practical matter, Brand understood that these people don't understand the values of higher education, but it's crucial, it's mandatory that they be exposed 
to that at the institutional level and that they fully understand how the the academic side sees college sports and, and how they can be uh, merged most effectively within the values of the institution. And you're not going to have that when you hire as your athletics director or your conference commissioner, someone who spent their entire career in the entertainment industry and has zero experience in the academy and has no real-world experiential understanding of the value system there at the institutional level and behind the administrative veil and how the, the values and the mission of higher education more broadly and then at the institutional level can be protected as the uh, commercial product and the professionalized product become more commercial and more professionalized. So we're not even having that discussion. And nobody at the NCAA or at the Power Five are saying that's important. I mean, it's just not even in the language anymore. And, and that's abundantly clear when you read this Big 12 press release on your mark. So uh, let's just transition into this Big 12 hire of your mark. And I just want to reemphasize that all of these conference entities, the Power Five conference entities, and it's true for, for all conferences, but I'm just going to focus on the Power Five here and particularly on the Big 12. These are separate nonprofit entities that are organized independent of the member institutions or the NCAA. They are freestanding and they are technically private, even though the Big Ten and the SEC are comprised overwhelmingly of public institutions, they are treated as private entities. And in that episode, I can't remember what number it was. It was in the first 10 episodes that I did on Big Ten secrets. We had the Big Ten university presidents led by Rebecca Blank, who was then at uh, Wisconsin-Madison. I think she's transitioning over to Northwestern now. But uh, there were all these discussions about whether to go forward with fall football. And remember, there was a split. The Big Ten and the Pac-12 wanted to hold off, and then the SEC, ACC, and Big 12 were full steam ahead. And so there were these discussions which were obviously... uh, controversial, but they were of enormous public importance. And so the big 12 presidents and chancellors took that conversation out of their state institutions where those documents and those discussions would have been subject to public records requests, and they ran them through the Big Ten conference portal. And by doing that, I mean, I'm not going to get into a discussion about the public records laws, but at least from the appearance of it, these university presidents and chancellors thought that they were going to immunize themselves from public records requests by having these conversations in this entity that is a private entity and not on its face subject to public records requests. So you have these entities where all this important business is conducted. And importantly, the board of directors on all of these conference entities are the university university presidents from the institutions that comprise that conference. So for the Big 12, all the Big 12 university presidents and chancellors sit on the board and they are responsible for all the key decisions. They uh, hire and fire the conference commissioner and and the staff. They decide the terms of employment, the compensation, the the, theoretically, I guess, the terms of any contracts that the uh, conference entity enters into. But they are the voice behind the conference entity, and they take votes on these decisions. And so it was the university presidents and chancellors of the Big 12 that hired Brett Yormark. But the Big 12 had an important partner in this job search. They hired a headhunting firm named Turnkey ZRG. And you're going to hear a lot more about this company because they not only were responsible for the search process for your mark and the Big 12 Conference Commissioner, they have also been retained by the NCAA in connection with the Board of Governors search for a new NCAA president. And importantly, too, they are responsible for the job search for the NCAA's new chief financial officer. And that's important. And, and on their website, they list the job description for that. And, and I'm going to talk about that in a separate episode, I think. Kathleen McNeely is the current NCAA CFO, and, and that is an extraordinarily important 
uh, position. And after reading this job description and the values that supposedly are required for someone to, to bring into that position, and then the skill set, and then the range of responsibilities, it's really interesting. And uh, she was a powerful woman at the NCAA, and uh, she worked right with Mark Emmert. They were joined at the hip, and I guess we throw in Don Remy there, too. You know, he left in uh, April of 2021. But this turnkey is an interesting organization, and they list that there are four subject matter areas that they do searches for. The first is sports and entertainment, and that involves really professional sports and then overlap into other entertainment products. Then they do media and tech. So uh, they handle job searches and do placements throughout the broadcast media world. And of course, that is joined at the hip with the sports and entertainment industry. There's a lot of crossover in these four categories that they identify. Then the third is intercollegiate athletics. They do a lot of placements with athletics directors and key athletics administrators. And then they're involved in the music industry. They have a good pool of placements in, in that industry. But those are the four areas that they work in. Higher education is not among them. And in this Yormark placement, when we look at his resume and what he brings to the table, he has an impressive resume in the context of sports entertainment and the broader entertainment industry. But he has no experience in higher education and turnkey ZRG isn't in that market. And that is so important. Because by hiring this firm, you have declared your interest, you have declared your criteria, and you have declared your values. And the same is true, even more true, I think, for the NCAA president. The NCAA has hired this firm. And the the model for leadership at the NCAA that's still part of the Constitution through the principle of institutional control and presidential responsibility for the conduct and control of intercollegiate athletics you have two tenures of former university presidents. Miles Brand began in 2003. Mark Emmert will go into 2023. So 20 years of university presidents running the NCAA and then through the work of the Knight Commission in the 1990s, the governing boards being comprised overwhelmingly of university presidents. When Mark Emmert announced that he was quote-unquote resigning, I think that was a, I'm not sure that was a voluntary resignation, but when he announced that, there was a lot of speculation about what the NCAA might be looking for. And I hypothesized that they were going to go with somebody who had stature, not necessarily out of the president's mold, but somebody who had stature in D.C. in Congress. And I thought they might be looking at a woman. I wasn't really thinking about the entertainment component of that, but that's a really important piece of the puzzle. And actually, it makes sense when you look at this new board of uh, governors and you look at the new constitution and you see that one of the few remaining responsibilities that the NCAA president has under the supervision of the board of governors is to maximize value out of the March Madness contract. And there have been a lot of people, I think, who have felt like Mark Emmert just had a set it and forget it mentality with the uh, March Madness money. And they had this long-term contract that goes into 2032. And he wasn't laying awake at night trying to think about how to squeeze more money out of that contract. And that came through, I think, in some of the criticism in the Kaplan gender equity report. When there was discussion about how to try to exploit additional revenue streams, including the March Madness contract. And the NCAA has done very little, as that report uh, painfully pointed out, to try to independently exploit revenue streams for women's basketball, which I think has enormous potential. It just hasn't been emphasized. But what what you see in in the emphasis now on this post-constitutional makeover is that what the NCAA really wants and needs is somebody out of the sports and entertainment industry who is going to be devoted to maximizing the ever-living hell out of the March Madness tournament. And that's the NCAA's sole source of revenue. And the NCAA bureaucratic state is entirely dependent on that revenue. And I've talked quite a bit about that as well. But in terms of other powers, the NCAA president has very little power under this new constitution. And if, if, if the only meaningful responsibility that it has, he or she has, is to maximize revenue, then get somebody who's good at that. I mean, I think that's a practical decision, but it does not have a damn thing to do with 
education or the values of higher education or the missions of the institutions that make up the NCAA. And so this, the use of this search firm really is a tell, and an important tell. And there hasn't been a lot of discussion here. And the other thing that would be interesting to know is how much are they paying this firm? How much did the Big 12 pay this firm? And how much is the NCAA paying them for this presidential search? That would be nice to know. Because remember, the, the NCAA is solely funded by revenue from uh, Division One men's basketball. And that sport has the highest concentration of African-American athletes of any sport in any division. And there's a direct tie to the racial component of the business model and the NCAA national office operations and and the money that it spends. And and the money that it's spending on the search firm is coming right from those athletes. Wouldn't it be nice to know what it's costing the Board of Governors to outsource a decision that they should be competent to make or that the Division I Board of Directors should be competent to make? I mean, they're just saying, look, we're out of the business of education. We're turning it over to the pros. So let me just go through this press release. And I was hoping that there might be some commentary after Yormark was hired about this really, this cord cutting by the Big 12 of its relationship to education. But then we had the conference realignment boogeyman rear its ugly head with UCLA and USC, and that has consumed the the sports media. But they introduce your mark. And again, he has a very impressive resume in his field, and that is the entertainment industry. And they get key comments. They get quotes from people who know your mark and are familiar with his work. They're all very nice, complimentary quotes, but I think it's important to look at where they come from. So the first one is from NBA commissioner Adam Silver. Yormark worked for the the Nets and was instrumental in overseeing the transition from uh, New Jersey to Brooklyn. And uh, that was viewed as a very successful transition. And so Silver says, Brett is one of the most skilled and knowledgeable executives in sports and entertainment. His decades of operational experience, relentless work ethic, and strong industry relationships will be of enormous value to the Big Ten, its schools, and its fans. Then we get a quote from Fox Sports CEO and executive producer, Eric Shanks. And he says, well, I want to you know, congratulate your mark. Brent is a talented and innovative executive who brings a remarkably unique perspective to the position. Under his leadership and vision, the conference is set up for success, and we look forward to continuing to build on our relationship as a premier partner of the Big 12. Then we get a quote from Texas Tech University president and Big 12 conference board chairman Lawrence Chauvinek. And he says this, and remember, this is coming from a university president who was involved in making this decision. In Brett Yormark, we have chosen a highly adaptable leader who thrives in dynamic times. The landscape of college athletics is evolving to look more like the world Brett has been leading. He's authentic and genuine in the way he builds relationships and partnerships and works relentlessly. And as Brett immerses himself in college sports and connects with all our stakeholders, he will bring a fresh approach and dynamic energy to the Big 12 as we engage a new generation of student athletes and fans. So that quote that the evolving landscape of college uh, sports is beginning to look more like the world Brett has been leading is an open acknowledgement that this is a professional product. This is, the again, the logical endpoint of one side of Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model, and that is exploiting the ever-living hell out of football, men's basketball. And if it results in an NFL product under the banner of higher education, then so be it. That's okay. So long as we take that money and give it to a bunch of uh, downstream beneficiaries, comparatively well-off <laughs> beneficiaries. I mean, this is a terrible model. He does use the word student-athlete, and that's the only reference to the athletes in this entire press release. And there's absolutely zero discussion about your Mark's credentials in the academic world because he doesn't have them. And it's not important to the decision that the Big 12 presidents were making. And then your Mark makes, makes some uh, comments and he, they're pro forma. I'm here to listen, learn, find ways to add value, add resources, and try to shine a light on the importance of college athletics and all that 
But so then there's a little bit of bio and they, they talk about Yormark's experience with Rock Nation. So that is the organization founded by rapper Jay-Z, I think in 2008. It was designed to try to provide some pathways for young performing artists, particularly those in the, in the rap field. And they had a, an agency that was set up to try to identify talent and then get it recognized. And then they developed a sports component of that. At going after professional athletes, and your mark was head of that. So he has a really impressive experience and, and wide-ranging experience, not just in professional sports, but also in the broader uh, entertainment industry, I think, with his um, work through Rock Nation. And then he also worked for NASCAR and was responsible for a really big contract that, that they got. So this guy is obviously very bright, very talented. He has the connections. That's one of the most important qualifications here is that he is networked. He is connected, and that is how you enhance existing revenue streams and you develop new revenue streams, and those relationships are are very, very important. Then they talk a little bit about the decision-making process, and they say the Big 12 Commissioner Search was led by the conference's executive committee, which includes Chauvinek, Baylor President Linda Livingstone, and Kansas Chancellor Douglas Drawed with the assistance of national search firm Turnkey ZRG. And it says the Big 12's board of directors, comprised of the presidents and chancellors of the 10 current Big 12 members, participated in the commissioner interview process along with the four new members of the conference who will be joining the Big 12 in 2023. The Big 12's current membership made the final selection of the commissioner. What's interesting about that is that the executive committee was this Texas Tech president. And then we had Livingstone and Gerard. And that those are important decision makers. Livingstone has been a reliable foot soldier for all the NCAA propaganda. And, and that was on full display at that September 30th, 2021 hearing. I did a few episodes on that that uh, I think are, are worth checking out because it was just disingenuous as hell. And Livingstone invoked the, the collegiate model, Miles Brand's financial framework, without referring to Brand or, or using the the, the phrase, the collegiate model. And then this Kansas chancellor, you read through this and you think, oh, these, these are just a couple of university presidents. Well, Livingstone is on the NCAA Board of Governors, the old one and the new one. She's on the NCAA Division One Board of Directors. She was on the uh, Constitution Committee. She's on the Transformation Committee. She is the ultimate NCAA bureaucratic insider. And she is a true believer. I don't know if she's a true believer. She is a, a true evangelist for for all of the dishonest propaganda that is fundamentally at odds with this new professionalized business model. And Gerard, Doug Gerard, he was sitting behind the microphone on February 11th of 2020 in the Senate Commerce Committee. Actually, it was a subcommittee of commerce that was chaired by Jerry Moran, a Republican from Kansas, who was also the author of this obnoxious bill that he put out in 2021, in February of 2021, that I've talked quite a bit about. But Gerard, at that hearing, he was NCAA all the way. And he wanted to make clear to that committee that even though Kansas was under investigation in this basketball scandal, they were going to take their punishment if they did something wrong. and But they're all on board with the, the principles and the values of the NCAA. But, you know, with these three, do they accurately represent what other Big 12 university presidents and chancellors are thinking? This is the executive committee. Everything runs through them. That gives them enormous power and the prerogatives they have about what information makes it down to the people who actually vote on it. And they are up to their eyeballs in NCAA BS. So the press release goes on then to just talk about who is in the Big 12 and Yormark's starting date and his contract term and all that stuff. They close it out with something that I think is really important here because there's been so much propaganda coming from the NCAA, the Power Five, the lawyers, the lobbyists, and the the spin doctors for the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries about the importance of women's sports and Title IX and gender equity and the non-revenue sports. That has been a rallying cry in their engagement with Congress. But when they're describing, again, this comes from the Big 12 conference itself, operating under the control of the university presidents and chancellors. And in the last paragraph of this press release, they do a summary of the achievements of the Big 12 conference. And they say, over the last decade, 
the Big 12 has won 32 team national championships. In 2021-22, the Big 12 captured eight team national titles, including NCAA men's basketball for the second consecutive season, and they paren Baylor and Kansas. Big 12 teams have played in the last four men's final fours. In football, the Big 12 has placed teams in the college football playoff New Year's Bowls throughout its eight-year history. The Big 12 is home to two of the last five Heisman Trophy winners and was the only conference to place a team in the final four and CFP semifinals in 2017-18 and 2018-2019. So, I mean, that's really interesting because that is focused almost exclusively on football and men's basketball. There's no discussion about women's sports. There's no discussion about the achievements of non-revenue sports. There's no discussion about the academic achievement of Big 12 athletes and the academic awards. They're talking about the Heisman Trophy. Do we have any academic All-Americans? Shouldn't you mention that? Shouldn't you mention the number of athletes who make the Big 12 honor roll or whatever academic honors you give to athletes for doing the very thing you claim they should be doing, which is excelling not just on the field, but in the classroom? That doesn't exist anywhere in this press release. And I I think that that just reflects the, the hypocrisy here. And because they have just dispensed with any pretense of trying to tie this decision to an academic purpose, they're just coming out and saying what the truth is. And the truth is that they only give a damn about the revenue-producing sports. And it goes back to, to all those things that, that universities desire and, and, and crave. So it's interesting because your mark, and, and this is true for George Klyavkov, the, the Pac-12 used the same strategy with George Klyavkov, who came from MGM Resorts. And a lot of people were scratching their head when he was hired. I guess it was, I don't know, maybe uh, almost two years ago. And he replaced Larry Scott. And the thinking in the Pac-12 decision makers was that Scott hadn't done enough to maximize the value of of the Pac-12 products. And you had some really good schools like UCLA and USC who had really underperformed in in football and men's basketball. Of course, they're gone now. But uh, Klyavkov was brought in to to try to to bring in a, a new approach. And it was like, well, we need some original thinking. We need an outsider to take a fresh look. And that's what you get from these descriptions of when the Pac-12 hired uh, Clive Coffin and, and now with your mark, and that's certainly going to be what we're going to hear when, when they announce who the new NCAA president, which is going to come out of that mold. I think that's pretty clear now. But I think it may be incorrect to characterize these kinds of hires as bringing outsiders with fresh ideas. These Outsiders really aren't outsiders at all. They have operated in the very industry that has been running college sports for a long time, and now it's just on the table. It's explicit, and there's no disguising it. And I guess you can say, well, that's probably a good thing because it's more honest. And now these elements of the business model that the uh, in-system stakeholder beneficiaries on the academic side have gone to great lengths to hide are now out in the open and and we can just uh, dispense with that charade that kabuki theater that amateur professional dilemma that ronald smith talked about in his 1988 book sports and freedom and it kind of this kind of brings me full circle to one of the points i made at the very beginning and it's such an important one and that is i just don't know how you can defend having an NFL, NBA-style products in football and men's basketball and openly and aggressively acknowledging that that's what you're doing while still insisting on a relationship between the laborers and the institutions that's guided by Division Three principles. You, you take some small liberal arts school that doesn't even have a football team, and you apply those values to an obviously professionalized product, and you say that that's entirely defensible under ridiculous uh, theories like Miles Brand's collegiate model. And in that, embedded in that, is the true injustice and the, 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 the social injustice and the racial injustice in this entire business model. And I just don't understand how people in the commentariat, both the sports commentariat and the, the broader media commentariat, can tacitly endorse that profound unjust 
hypocrisy through their silence. And I just want to close out this episode by by reading the statement of the Big 12 in its Form 990 nonprofit tax return. So I've talked about these a little bit in prior episodes, but every nonprofit entity has to file a a tax return. It's in the nature of disclosures. And it's called the Form 990. And really the purpose of this document is to make sure that the way that a nonprofit's actually conducting its business and how the money moves is consistent with its stated nonprofit mission. And the Big 12 Conference, I have one for, let's see, this is for the tax year 2019, the period ending June of, of 2020. And uh, you have to declare what type of tax-exempt status you're claiming. And the Big 12 is a 501c3 nonprofit, and it hangs its nonprofit hat on education. It is an education nonprofit. And you also, on these Form 990s, you have to disclose your nonprofit mission. Here is what the Big 12 says. The mission of the conference is to advance standards of scholarship, sportsmanship, and equity with the highest ideals of conference membership. Support the development of national championship intercollegiate athletics programs. Organize, promote, and administer intercollegiate athletics among its member institutions. Optimize revenues and provide supporting services compatible with both academic and competitive excellence. And encourage collaboration in areas beyond athletics that builds goodwill between institutions and promotes the overall missions of the universities. Now that covers a lot of territory, but it begins begins and ends with education, scholarship, and the overall missions of the universities. It's bookmarked. This justification is bookmarked by educational values, as it has to be if you're going to claim a nonprofit status as an education nonprofit. And in the middle of, of, that, of those bookends, you have them talking about optimizing revenues and, and providing supporting services, but I'm guessing that they would justify that revenue optimization under Miles Brand's collegiate model and this massive regressive transfer of wealth. But how in the world is that stated nonprofit mission consistent with what the Big 12 is actually doing here in turning over the reins of the of the conference and its member institutions to the entertainment industry? And again, who knows if the IRS or Congress is going to come in and you know make a big deal about this and highlight again the absurdity of the nonprofit status in football and men's basketball. But I don't think that conversation is going to occur. And I think it's in part because the NCAA and the Power Five have been so good in normalizing and propagandizing this overt professionalization that it's just now part of the business model and all those lines in the sand, as I mentioned earlier in this episode, all those lines in the sand, those values-based lines in the sand have just been rubbed away and they don't exist. They've been flushed down the memory hole and nobody's going back to compare what is happening right now to the value system that existed before. And that's one of the powers and prerogatives of powerful institutions and powerful industries, particularly when you control the language. And so what what do we have here? So we have entertainment and engagement in the driver's seat in college sports, and education has been tossed out the window. All right. So with that, I'm going to close this thing out. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.